started a series called The Favors. It's a lot of, a lot of in-depth thinking, thinking about how we would call this particular series, but it's called The Favors. It's taking a moment to unlock popular and favorite verses of the Bible. In our quest, as we began, that we looked first at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which says to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who ever asks you of the reason of the hope that you have. We stated emphatically last week that the hope we have as Christians, as believers, is firmly planted in Jesus Christ. Our hope is found in nothing that sometimes the world finds their hope in, like money or career or lottery or championships or a perfect spouse or perfect children. They just don't exist, so we find ourselves in nothing. Nothing provides hope like Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reason for the hope that we have every day of our lives. So as we introduced this series last week pertaining to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 regarding hope, today we transition a bit. And as that truth then about Jesus being our source of hope that we have in our lives, as it echoes in our ears and hearts and minds, we turn our attention to a very, very popular verse. Interestingly, it needs no introduction, although Sheila has already introduced it somewhat for us. It's the most popular verse, arguably, in the Bible. You probably know it well, probably even memorized it early in your believer Christian life. It is none other than John 3.16. I recited the verse. I memorized it early in life from the King James Version. So won't you recite it with me? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the verse that we talk about and we analyze and discuss today. It's a very powerful verse, but the thing is, it's not a standalone verse. There are verses associated with it. So let us turn to John chapter 3 and read a portion of what is happening in association with arguably the most memorized, most recited, most favorite verse of many different people into this world. Stand with me this morning as we do so to honor the reading of the word. We're in John chapter 3. We're going to start at the beginning but leap into verse 9. And verse 9 then says this as we read then through verse 21. John chapter 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, him is Jesus. How can these things be? But Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then John 3.16, For God so loved the world that gave his only Son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, 
lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Father, Lord, we come again before you now at this moment, Lord, just asking that you'll guide, to lead, and direct these words be expressed here today, Lord, the words that I might say or that we might hear and not be the words that I want to say, Lord, but the words that the Spirit will lead and guide and direct us into our hearts this morning. I pray for the children as with their leaders this morning to also have an awakening and receive the word. The word is powerful today, Lord, and let's receive it in full in its entirety. So Lord, we invite your Spirit now to lead and to guide and direct us as we recipient of your glory and grace and mercy here today and of your word. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, obviously then, as we've read that text on a reading, we didn't start in the very beginning. We started with verse 9, and it gets to the point we started right there with Nicodemus's question. How can these things be? Which then carries a bit of a presupposition that you know what Nick is questioning. But to make sure we're all on the same page, it's not be presumptive to think that we know certainly what Nick is questioning. But let's go back to the beginning and begin to understand exactly why he's saying, how can these things be? So in John chapter 3, if we go back now to the very beginning of the gospel in the third chapter, Nicodemus approaches Jesus by night and inquires about the many different miracles he has been performing. Nicodemus is perplexed, as are many different people. But Nicodemus seems tremendously curious. But note in verse 2, then, as he begins to inquire about the miracles, he does everything but actually asks the question. He says, the man came to Jesus, that's Nicodemus, by night, as we mentioned, and then said to him, it's not a question. He just said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And then see the question mark. So he makes a statement. But notice that Jesus, being Jesus and fully man and fully God, knows exactly. Even though he didn't ask the question, Jesus knows why Nicodemus is coming to him. And then tells him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, as one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, what is the reaction of Nicodemus? It's like it blows his mind. He doesn't know how to react to that. Totally confused and perplexed. I mean, you can tell by verse 4, he says, well, how can a person be born again if he is old? Or how can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? He just does not get it. So then Jesus responds in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear a sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born the Spirit. Which then, when we began to read in verse 9, Nicodemus asked, how can these things be? How can these things be totally perplexed, not understanding at all what Jesus had tried to illustrate and tell him? So think about the question and the situation that Nicodemus is now in. And ask yourself this question. Have you ever in your life been perplexed on how certain things happen? I think most of us probably have wondered how certain things happen. 
I was thinking about this last week, and for some unknown reason, as I was thinking about perplexities in life and how things sometimes happen and how I can explain it, forgive me, but the movie Joe Dirt come to mind. Because in the movie Joe Dirt, if you've seen the movie, I'm not suggesting you go see it, but if you've seen the movie, you get Joe, who is played by David Spade. He begins to question his parents on leaving him at the Grand Canyon. He says, how long exactly did you look for me before leaving? It's a great question. But his dad, then played by Fred Ward, sarcastically responds with some of life's perplexities. He says, well, Joe, how exactly is a rainbow made? How exactly does a sunset? How exactly does a positive track rear end on a Plymouth work? And he answers, it just does. Not only it's not the best illustration to be able to use, but it does point us to the very fact that sometimes some things in life does happen and it leaves us questioning about how it was possible. Like, how can these things be? Which is Nicodemus' situation. How can these things be? Because we look at the text and Nicodemus is clearly confused and quite perplexed. I mean, in verse 4, as you can tell, I mean, he essentially says, how can it be possible? I heard what you said, Jesus. Okay, I'm seeking you by night. I, I heard you, but how can it be possible that a person is born again? And of course, Jesus answers him, maybe even confusing more, in verse 7 and verse 8 with the reference to some meteorological winds blowing where it may do, and relating that to the, to the Spirit. And they don't get it. I mean, he just doesn't understand what Jesus is trying to tell him. So Jesus then, again, being fully God and fully man, knowing all things, knowing that also Nicodemus is a so-called Old Testament law expert, utilizes Moses and the serpent in verse 14 and 15. If he didn't understand the meteorological reference, and he says in verse 14, and... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, with those very words being spoken, Nicodemus' mind spun back thousands of years to what is recorded in Numbers chapter 21. It is a reference that Nicodemus should clearly understand and know full well. And should certainly be familiar with as the Old Testament law expert that he claims to be. But in Numbers 21, here's the reference. In 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they sent out by the Red to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food in the water. And we loathe this worthless food. Well, then the Lord, in verse 5, verse 6, you see in that text, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. 
so Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. If a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's where the reference comes from that Jesus tells Nicodemus as Nicodemus has his perplexity about how he can be reborn and what it means to be born again. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. But look at the text once more. I mean, the text can be, as Jesus makes this reference to Numbers 21, one of horror and scariness to one of glory. Now, the horror, if you're like me, comes in because it involves snakes. I hate snakes. Who's with me? I hate snakes. I got some amen on that one. I can't stand snakes. Look, if you're like me, the best type of snake is a what? Dead snake. Right, exactly. When we lived in Texas, we would have copperheads to come to our house, be around the house. We had dogs outside. When the dog came to full point, barking at the ground, I knew there was a snake nearby. So seeing that, I would go to my garage to get my hatchet, carefully venture out to where the dog is on point looking at the ground barking, find the copperhead, and begin to chop, chop, chop away at that particular snake till it was dead. But then, just to make sure it was dead, I began to chop more to make sure it was in pieces. Then I would get my shovel from the garage, scoop it up, and take it over to the fire pit. I wanted to make sure this snake wasn't going anywhere. Because I hate snakes. So the reference in Numbers 21 can be a little bit horror to us in that it involves snakes. I mean, it's horrible. And the Israelites were bitten by a horde of venomous snakes. And perhaps so many different snakes that the people could not escape. As a result of their and they're bitten, bitten. The bodies were inflamed with fever. And they either were on the verge of death, or as mentioned in verse 6, they had died. I mean, what a horrific scene. If you've seen the movie Indiana Jones, you know what I'm talking about, where Harrison Ford in this big pit of snakes is horrified that he's down there with the snakes. I'm with him. I hate snakes. But the Lord uses it for a reference because it becomes glorious. Because here we see God's provision he has for mankind and of healing. And basically it tells us that the Lord left no doubt about the application that Nicodemus should understand. That just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man should be lifted up. In essence, it means that this is a picture of the dying sinful world with the atoning cross raised high. So notice then as Nicodemus is receiving this, that the snakes then in the illustration of Numbers 21, we need to relate to the fact, and Nicodemus should too, is that it's our sin that we have in our lives. The sin that Nicodemus, that you and I, that everyone in life has. I mean, we come from our mother's womb as beautiful as we may be, but still yet a sinner. Paul correctly states in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Or in chapter 3, verse 23, that for all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So because we have sinned, Nicodemus, and all the world together, we are incapable of saving ourselves. And because this is true, our loving, merciful, compassionate Father provided a way for us to be reborn, to be born again. That God provided the way, and Jesus explains the way then, to Nicodemus. But as we've mentioned, Nicodemus just does not get it. 
He just doesn't understand. The language that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus through the meteorological reference of wind, or maybe even now uh, the one with the serpents in, num in Numbers 21, about being born again and how that relates to it, is like a foreign language to Nicodemus. Similar, if you will, to how we may be going to the doctor and receive a prognosis. And so many times the doctor comes out and starts giving you all these medical terms and language that we just do not understand. And we say, Doc, I can't understand what you're saying. Just give it to me in layman's terms. So Jesus is trying to give it to Nicodemus here in layman's terms. The concept of being born again. When he begins then to use analogy of Mo Moses lifting up his servant, a serpent to explain to him. Again, it should be clear to Nicodemus the application that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man should be lifted up high. There's a picture of the dying sinful world with the atoning cross raised high. But that reference being used in Numbers chapter 21 for Nicodemus as Jesus responds to that him in John chapter 3 is not just an application or illustration for Nicodemus to him to understand. It, it should be for all believers and all Christians to understand. It should speak loudly, certainly, to Nicodemus, his Old Testament law expert. But it should also speak to all of us. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says, we dare not miss the importance of the gaze of faith. Numbers 21, especially verse 9, says, when anyone looked at the bronze snake, he lived. The command to look to the uplifted serpent was the greatest foreshadowing of looking to Christ for our salvation. No wonder our Lord said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Moses raised that serpent up high in the camp, and all the dying Israelites had to do was to look to that pole and be saved. No matter how horribly they were bitten, no matter how many times they had been bitten, or how sick they were, the opportunity for salvation was there. He says, lastly then, even the most degraded and miserable sinner who looks to Christ will be saved. Let me say it again. Even the most degraded and the miserable sinner who looks to Christ will be saved. That's our Heavenly Father. That's how much He loved us. And He uses then that reference in Numbers 21 to give to Nicodemus to help him understand and it's to help us understand as well that perfect setup is a perfect illustration, if you will, for the proclamation that comes in the very next set of verses that all snake-bitten, a.k.a. sinners in the world, all they needed was a perfect sacrifice, a Savior who was without blemish, perfect in every possible way, and it happened to be God's only son that became the perfect sacrifice for us. It's a perfect setup with the fiery serpents to make that proclamation in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he was only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish of everlasting life. Again, as we said earlier, it is the most memorized verse in the Bible. Likely the favorite of many people here this morning or even people who are listening later. And the verse has been made into books, into music and song. 
has been displayed on billboards and t-shirts and hats and much, much more. In fact, it's quite possible. I know it's March Madness time, but during football season, a lot of times you'll see as your favorite team, not the Bears, Nick, I'm sorry, but as your favorite team begins to score the touchdown, which doesn't happen to Dallas Cowboys either, but as they make it to the end zone and they make a touchdown, there is the place kicker who's getting ready to make the extra point. How many times have you been watching a football and see a guy holding up a sign that says John 3.16? It's the most memorized, most popular verse in the world, so it seems. I mean, just the numbers itself, just the citation, John 3.16, just screams out relevance. It points us to the very fact that God loved mankind so much that he gave his only son as the atonement for our sin. Just the numbers itself screams that relevance. Dr. David Jeremiah says this single verse tells more about God and his plan for this world than any other verse in the Bible. God gave the most extravagant thing he could to demonstrate his love for lost humankind, summoning and sending his only begotten son to pay the debt for our sin. This number just means great. It screams relevance. Just John 3.16. Without the verse even recited, John 3.16 just screams relevance. Max Lepedo. The verse is an alphabet of grace. A table of contents of the Christian hope. Each word a safe deposit box of jewels. It is a 26-word parade of hope, beginning with God, ending with life, and urging us to do the same. The heart of the human problem, which is our sin, is in the heart of the human. And God's treatment is prescribed in John 3.16. It's exactly what we need. We talked about hope last week. Jesus is our hope. God gives us the hope through his only son. John 3.16 tells us that. Finally, Kent Hughes says further, John 3.16 shows us the greatness of God's love that is a vast, unbounded bottom of sea. That is the heart of the gospel. It is not simply God is love, but God loved the world so much that he gave. That is what lies at the root of the new birth. So with all that said, if we were blessed here this morning with having Nicodemus in our presence, we could turn to him and look at him and begin to ask him, Nicodemus, do you understand how this can be? That's his question. How can these things be? How can someone be born again? And the only answer we could provide to him as he's questioned is that it's only possible through the overflowing, unbounded love of God. The new birth, to be born again, that everyone must have in their life to inherit the kingdom, is only possible because of the great, boundless love of God. That is the very essence of the words, for God so loved the world. But somehow, some way, if Nicodemus or anyone in the world today remains confused, note then by returning to the text that the Lord quickly adds a few things. In verse 17, it's not just verse 16, but 17 adds. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn them, but in order the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. While those two verses, verses 17 to 18, are sometimes rarely voiced. I mean, John 3.16 gets all the glory. But while those two verses that follow are sometimes not expressed, maybe not memorized, notice how they still pack a very powerful punch, providing great assurance for the believer. And to the non-believer was an everlasting sting, a burning sensation of condemnation that leaves him or her destined for agonizing torment in hell. That's what those verses tell us. But even further, the conclusion of the verses we read today speaks even of the forthcoming judgment to those whom it's the light, the light being Jesus given to the world, whom they rejected, who would rather stay in the darkness. Verse 19, this is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But if it does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen his works have been carried out in God. It's remarkable that John says these words, because honestly, actually, he's already expressed these words once. He carries them again in John chapter 3. We just read the conclusion of our reading in verses 19 through 21. But notice how they just echo the same thing he had written earlier in the very first chapter of his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 9, he says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. seems the gospel of John just repeatedly affirms that Jesus is the light who is coming to the world. And it also equally confirms for us that people will reject the light. Amazing, reject the light that Jesus has given us, that God has given us the Son, but he reject that light, preferring to stay their course in the darkness. It's amazing to think that people will reject the light and want to continue their evil, wicked way and remain in the darkness. But Nicodemus, not necessarily evil, was he? I mean, he didn't necessarily be wicked. But yet, as we look at Nicodemus, he was a lost soul. Lost, but searching. Curious, but remained uncommitted. At least at this moment. Many scholars very quickly point out when we begin to talk about Nicodemus, and refer to John chapter 3 or John 3.16, that while Nicodemus, in the beginning of this text, the beginning of the story as it unfolds in John chapter 3, while he was afraid and maybe ashamed to be seen with Christ, but sometime later he became unashamed. John also writes in his gospel, 19th chapter, verse 38, After these things, Joseph Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. 
So he came and took away his body. Look in verse 39. Nicodemus also, the same Nicodemus, who earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So he took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as a burial custom of the Jews. Notice then that after the Lord was crucified, it was Joseph of Arimathea, yes, but also Nicodemus, who came along to the Jewish leaders and began to claim the Lord's body. And perhaps then, as scholars suggest, it was, if not, if not, he'd never understood before, perhaps then it finally clicked and made sense that he must be born again. The point is this. It must click and make sense for all of us at one point in our lives to inherit the kingdom. He must be born again. Nicodemus comes along and simply asks a question that maybe a lot of people ask today. And they're being perplexed and confused. He says, how can these things be? How can this new birth you're talking about happen? And the Lord answered in a way that Nicodemus would never forget. And we analyze it today as we look at the most popular verses in Scripture. And it serves as a reminder for us as well. That as we analyze, yes, some very popular, well-known verses that John 3.16 is incredibly powerful. It's deep. It's full of love and full of meaning. The text surrounding John 3.16 that was just important as the verse itself. It's not a single verse to recite and to memorize and to leave it alone. It has much more meaning, much more depth, because it powerfully tells us the entire story that we must be reborn to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the entire story that also answers the question that you once may have had, or that you may have still today, or that others may have around you, of how these things can be possible. How can this be? How can this be that your life has changed from whatever it was before to what it still may be today? Or how it's radically different when you accepted Christ and was reborn? It explains the question. How can these things be? Matthew Henry in his older commentary provides a fitting summary and conclusion. He said, Nicodemus was afraid or shame to be seen with Christ. Therefore, he came in the night. But though he came by night, Jesus bid him welcome. Our Savior spoke of the necessity and nature regeneration or the new birth, and at once directed Nicodemus to the source of the holiness of the heart. Birth is the beginning of life. To be born again is to begin life anew. We must have a new nature new principles, new affections, new aims. He continues, by our first birth, we were corrupt, shapen in sin. Therefore, we must be made new creatures. We must be entirely different from what we were before and cannot be the same with that what we was before. The new birth is from heaven, and this tendency is to heaven. It is a great change made in the heart of a sinner by the power of the Holy Spirit, it means that something is done in us and for us, which we cannot do for ourselves. 
I know that's a long comment. But Matthew Henry's older commentary still is a fitting way to conclude and to summarize what John 3.16 and all the text around it means to us. The comment from Henry not only answers the question in a non-believer's life as it was of Nicodemus at that particular moment of how can this be, but it also is a proper explanation of the most popular verse in the world of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today. It's Lord, a reminder perhaps to us of the importance of how we have this great love for us that your Father gave to all of us, Lord, to all people, all sinners, not just Baptists, Lord, not just one denomination, but to all people. He gave the right, the privilege to come to him through his son, only son, Jesus, and to be reborn. We pray today, Lord, that this message began to have some clarity and somehow some confusion began to exist on how a person could be reborn. We pray today, Lord, this message made sense to those here this morning or maybe listening later. We ask now that you direct us in our heart to respond in the proper way you want us to respond today. Lord, we just want to thank you so much for your son Jesus. We thank you for his message today, Lord. We even thank you for the beautiful day you've given us. All blessings are from you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.